Thank you, Anne. Well, certainly it was always a, a great privilege to have Anne around. I'm not sure about being a guiding light. She was usually streaming ahead, in, leaving clouds of glory behind her and us trailing in her wake. But I'm very happy if that's the memory she has of me, is of caring for her. Very glad. And it's just lovely to be here with you this evening. Um, I, at the moment, lead a little mountain church I tell you, it would be like heaven come early if I face this number of faces on a Sunday and we sing from hymns, ancient and modern. So thank you, Alice. Lovely to have, to experience your worship leading again. There's a picture up here of mountains and uh, that's really very similar to the range I look out on from my balcony. Um, it's a real hardship post, but someone has, to do, someone has to do it, so I'm very happy to hear the call of God. Um, and I want to take you, actually, to another mountain range, and it's one that you may be very familiar with. Uh, it may be a passage of scripture that you are uh, very knowledgeable about, and it may be something that you've never thought about before. I have no way of knowing. But you will see, if you look at my Bible, that I've gone very near to the beginning, to a book called Joshua. And uh, it's a time when the children of Israel, God's special chosen people, way back in time, are facing a stream in the desert. They are very familiar with the desert. They've been there, they and their ancestors have been there for what the Bible calls 40 years, which is the code the Bible uses for a very, very long time. Now, I don't live in a desert. I live in a very, very fertile valley, which in the spring is just breathtaking with orchids and scabious and campions and daisies and... I could go on. So don't get the impression that my back garden looks like this. But these people, they had walked for all these years trying to find their way somewhere really specific. God had told them, you see, that he was going to take them out of Egypt where they were slaves, take them away from a place where they'd got no choice of who they were going to worship. They had to worship Pharaoh, or it was a case of off with his head. He was going to take them away from a place where they were treated as less than dirt. And he was going to take them to a place that God called the promised land the land of promise, and the way that God delights to paint pictures in our minds of what he's going to do. He used the words flowing with milk and honey. Now, when I was a child, I used to think that sounded really quite sticky. But, But actually, when you get used to God painting pictures with words, it's quite lush, isn't it? Quite decadent, quite generous. And compared with being a slave in Egypt, being beaten because you hadn't collected enough to make bricks with, living through the plagues that, if you remember your Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat saga, uh, living through all those plagues, one minute going, the next minute stopping, not knowing where they were. And here they are at the end of the journey between Egypt and the promised land. And at the beginning of Joshua, there's only one hurdle left to face. 
Now, <clears throat> these people aren't the people who left Egypt. They're the next generation. Their parents had got so many things wrong, as parents do. They had got disobedience to a really fine art in the desert. They had grumbled and moaned in a way that really puts me in the pale, really. I'm quite good at that myself, aren't you? But they were just so full of grumblings about how much better it would have been to stay in Egypt. That in the end, God, the loving God, the Father God, the generous God, the God who was giving them this land flowing with milk and honey, said to this gen- whole generation, you're just not going to get there. You'll never arrive. And that bit of the story stands for all time as a warning not to push God too far. But here are the children, and they have grown up. They have had children, and my goodness, they're arriving. And in the second chapter of the book of Joshua, this one hurdle stands between them and the promise of God fulfilled. And it's a river. That's a stream It's probably something that people looking across the desert would think, how wide is it? How narrow is it? But if we can have the next slide, we'll see that not all rivers are like that. And this was a river that divided. It was a river which divided people from stepping into the promises of God. Over the other side, tantalizingly, they knew was the land. But here they were, on the wrong side. Now, I don't know what they had in their minds as they looked at that river. I'm quite sure they didn't have a bridge in their mind. They were nomadic people. They'd just walked out of a desert after being grown there. No bridge. They didn't have boats in their mind, although in Egypt, their ancestors would have known boats. But... They'd been born in a desert. They certainly didn't have cruise ships in their mind. They just looked at this vast expanse of water, and it was absolutely unpassable for them. And they pitched their tents. What else can you do if you live in a desert and you're nomadic? You're faced with a river. You can't do anything about it. So you pitch your tent and you start peeling the potatoes and you put the children to bed and you you get on with life. But Joshua was a really wise leader and he went around the tents, a vast, vast area of them. And he went round and he sent his messengers to tell them, you need to keep your eyes peeled for the sign that we're crossing over the river. The river. You need to be ready for the sign. When the priests pick up the Ark of the Covenant, the box that promises the presence of God, you will see it in the distance from wherever you are. The top of the box is covered with the arching wings of angels, covered in sheets of gold. And when they lift up the box and they put the poles on their shoulder, you will see the sun shining on the angels' wings, and you'll know it's time to go. Don't miss out. 
Don't get stuck in the desert. Be ready to step into the promises of God. So there they were. What were the priests going to do? Were they going to sit on the box and paddle their way across? And what would happen to the rest of them? Were they going to do a ferry service backwards and forwards over the river? And they kept watching and they set their children to watch. And they all asked each other to keep watch for them. Believe me, no one wanted to get left behind. Who would choose the desert compared with a land of promise? Who would want to live on acrid water if you were faced with the choice of milk and honey? And so they waited and they watched. And in the end, they saw the sign. They saw the sun shining on the wings. They saw the wings tilt this way and that and steady. And they knew it was time to go. And when the priests stepped forward and they put their toes, it's a lovely picture, isn't it? That's what the Bible says. When the priest's toe went into the river, the most extraordinary phenomenon took place. And the waters boiled back into a heap right back to the, the next village along. I think they were thrilled uh, to have the whole of the river piled up at their back door. But there it was. And here were these people who had never seen a river like that before, who had never known except in stories told to them of what God could do. Here they saw God at work, God leading the way, God fulfilling his promises. A few years ago, three, my life fell apart. The bottom just fell out of my world. Everything that was important to me just sort of got swept away. Everything that I best loved to do and to be was impossible. I was such an unpleasant person. I assure you, I was not easy to live with. But gradually, as the dark days went by, I started to think again about the promises of God. I was pretty angry with God, actually. The conversations that I had with him probably don't bear repeating now. You just take my word for it that I was cross and I communicated that. But God can cope with you being cross, that's fine. But as the days went by and I started putting into words, into prayer, something of my heart, it was, but where have you gone? What's going to happen to me now? This is like the end of the road, and I'm not ready for it yet. What are you going to do? If I was God, I wouldn't make a mess of it like this. Come and do something. And God said to me, out of nowhere, out of the darkness, when I was not expecting a word from him at all, he said, just step back into my promises. And of course, I was lethal. Your promises? What have you done about your promises? Look at this. Look at that. But the word just came again. Step into my promises. 
And uh, the day after that had happened, while I was still mulling in my mind whether this was something, perhaps it sounds odd to you that I should question it, but I did, whether this was really something from God or whether it was just me under the pressure and stress of the emotion I was experiencing. Imagine clutching at straws, we call it, don't we? But the day after that, I had a message from a good friend of mine saying, have you seen this advertisement for the job in Chateau Day? Don't you think it would suit you? And I emailed him back, where on earth is Chateau Day? And, of course, everyone I say that to is shocked and say, Chateau Day, well, it's where you ski. But you see, I had never skied. I'd never been to Switzerland before. And so we started looking at this job in Switzerland of leading a church. We started thinking together, Tom and I, about, well, what would it be like to move there, to step out there, to leave the family, to leave our friends, to leave the mess, which we were quite happy to leave behind. Weren't we a bit old for that? Wasn't it time we settled down? What would we do with our home? Where would home be? What about my garden? And God just kept patiently saying, just step into my promises. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? And maybe for some of you here tonight, you relate to the disappointment. Perhaps you know what it's like when the bottom falls out of your world. Perhaps you know what it's like when you run up against the buffers and you think this is the end. There's nothing left that I can hope for. Well, here's what God does. He says, but I'm the God of promises. You don't want to live in the desert all your life, do you? He was saying to his people, is that where you want to stay? Is that what you want to be, the end of the story? Come on, step into my promises. Leave the desert behind. Aren't you sick of having sand in your supper? Wouldn't you like to sleep without it getting all down inside your sheets? Wouldn't you like to live in a proper house? Wouldn't you like to tend your gardens? Wouldn't you like to be my people who are respected and looked up to? Well, step into my promises. And the people did. They walked... The next slide reminds us that not only the river divides us from God's best and his promises, but the river also unites. This river also united the people. You see, it wasn't that the priests had got to step down and wave goodbye to them. It wasn't, actually, that all the men had to step down and wave a fond farewell. It wasn't that this was just for people of a respectable income, because, to be honest, none of them had much of an income. This was for the whole people of God. The men, the women, the small children, the baby in arms, the old people, the teenagers... It was for those who made all the decisions at the time. It was for the people who were really influential. It was the people who never spoke to anyone. It was the cross, for the people who were all cross all the time. It was for the children who weren't making good progress. It was for the teenagers who just chewed gum, maybe. Um, it was for everyone. 
everyone had to step down into the riverbed and start walking, start stepping into those promises of God. It wasn't just for one or two. It wasn't for a hierarchy. It was for every single person in the people of God tribes. And off they went. They must have looked the most bedraggled group of people ever for a God to call his own. But they went. We're not told of anyone who got left behind. And in fact, the book of Joshua tells us in such detail that had they got left behind, I'm sure we would have been told. But the babies were carried. The children probably crossed the river five or six times by the time everybody else got across. The old people would have mooched across saying, things didn't happen like this in my day. And I expect the teenagers lounged and looked terribly cool about it as though they'd crossed the Jordan every day of their lives. It was for everyone. Because the river of God not only divides us from the promises unless we choose to step into them. But the river, this river, unites. It's for all the people of God. In Switzerland, there is, uh, um, in the village where I live, of Chateau Day, which I'm sure you'll all have skied at, um, there are several churches. It's not... To my mind, it's not a village, it's a small market town, but I wouldn't dare say that in Chateau Day, it's a village. Um, But in the village, there are six churches, and they are all really healthy churches. All except mine are French-speaking churches, and the church that I lead is an English-speaking church, which is a relief to me and to everyone else. Every six weeks, the ministers of the churches get together for breakfast. Uh, The rest of them are all men. They're all Swiss. They all speak fluent French. We get together for the most enormous croissants and the tiniest cups of lethal coffee, which hit the bottom of my stomach at ten past eight in the morning like nothing else. And in that little group, I could so easily feel completely intimidated. Fifty years ago, I passed O-level French. (laughs) It takes some resurrecting after 50 years. (laughs) And funnily enough, in O-level French, I didn't learn many uh, sort of ecclesiastical words or (laughs) phrases. By the time I come home after breakfast, I just ache with concentrating. It would be so, so easy for me not to go. But what a big decision that would be. They are the men of God in the place. They have a real heart for the people of Chateau Day. We pray together. We talk together, (laughs) some more haltingly than others, about what we're doing, what we long for, what our vision is, what the dream is. When I walk round Chateau Day, uh, when I'm going down to the church to open it on market days or whatever, I wear a dog collar so that people can identify that that's who I am. When I first went there, the church had a reputation that it had closed. It's quite weird, you know, that everyone thought St. Peter's had closed. So when I introduced myself and said who I was, oh, is it reopening? 
It's never closed. I learnt the French for it's never closed very quickly. <laughs> oh, yes, it has, they said. Yes, it's been, hasn't it? Yes, yes, it's been closed for years. It's never closed. So I wear a dog collar. I don't go round in a dog collar very much, but I do when I'm going round the village because I want St. Peter's to be known, to be alive and well, thriving, busy, happy, a community of Jesus Christ. It's quite interesting in a French-speaking area of Switzerland to uh, see the variety of response. They can't work it out. Everyone knows that someone who wears a collar is a priest, right? And everyone knows that a priest is a man. (laughs) What is this woman doing masquerading as a man? (laughs) Have some interesting conversations. But it would be so much easier not to do it. It would be so much easier just to be anonymous, to be honest. It would be so much easier on my French It would be so much easier as a person. As I walk down the village street, I am so noticeable. I find it really difficult. And everyone knows I'm not withdrawn. But I find it really intimidating. Why do I do it? Well, because I think it's really important that I identify myself and take my place in the people of God in that place. You see, there's a place that's shaped like Penny Frank. There's a place that no one else can take. There's a place that's just for me. Not because I'm more special than other people. There is a place for each one of us in the people of God. And the place that's for you is only for you. The place that's for me is only for me. I never wanted to go to Switzerland. It wasn't my dream for my retirement to go and live miles away from five grandchildren. It wasn't my idea to suddenly turn my brain into knots, remembering something that I, to be honest, I was never committed to learning 50 years ago, never mind now. I don't like being the weird woman of Chateau Day. But it's what, uh, it's my place. It's where I'm supposed to be. Now, where's your place in the people of God? What is it about your place that you find difficult? What's challenging about it? What do you love about it? What is it that would make you shrink away from it? Maybe you don't even... Believe me when I say that there's a place that's just for you. But there is. The older I get, the more I realize that there is something about us all being completely different from each other that is far more than God just showing how very clever he is at creativity. You're unique. There's no one else like you. I'm unique. There's no one else like me. And although Chateau Day might be very pleased about that, it is so important that I step in to that place. I step up to the mark. I take my place in the people of God as me. 
And I think the challenge of this huge crowd of people walking and perhaps looking quite bedraggled, going across the riverbed with the children jumping in and out of puddles and splashing everybody with water, and each of them in their own way, being themselves, but stepping into those promises of God, taking their place as the people of God. I find something about that that is so challenging. And I wonder whether the challenge is for you as well. So the river that uh, divides, it could have divided the people from everything that they had in the desert. Uh, It could have kept them there. It could have divided them from what God's promises were for them. And the river that unites, it was the very thing that drew them together. One big company of people walking across into the promised land. I'd have loved to have been there. But there's something else about this river that's really challenged me, and it's the fact that the river reminds. What they're told to do, you'll have to read this story. It it goes on for two chapters. That's the only reason I'm telling you it. But when they come to the edge of the river bed and they're walking across, Joshua says to one person of each of the 12 tribes of people, go back to the center of the riverbed the priests were still standing there with the ark of the covenant while they stood there here was all the water piling up back at aram uh, with all the people there saying oh my goodness what a lot of water and he sent them these 12 people back into the riverbed and he said choose a stone now they could have said i suppose to joshua We're not playing stones with the priests standing. What if the water comes back? But they did what they were told. They went back into the middle of the river and they tugged out of the mud a stone and they staggered with it across the muddy water to the bank of the river and they climbed up where the water level wouldn't reach it and they piled up the stones in a can at the side of the river. And... Joshua, using the words that God had given him, said, we're building the cairn here so that every time you pass this way, you'll remember what happened here. You'll remember what God has done here, who God is, what God has said. You'll be reminded as you come past this cairn. And in years to come, when these children have grown up and have children of their own and they walk this way, as they smooth their hands over the warm stones at the side of the River Jordan and their children say to them, Dad, what's that? They'll be able to say, these stones came from underneath all that water and God swept the water back and we brought the stones out, and we built it up here. And God is the God who keeps his promises. God is the God who never lets his people down. God is the God who says he'll bring his people into a special land, and he does it. God is the God who speaks, and his word comes to pass. 
And you know, I just want to add my testimony to what Alice has said tonight. I've told you what a rotten time it was for me. I've told you how my world collapsed. But I want you to hear me say also that to stand here tonight and say, God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who always does what God says he will do. It's the same voice, and I really mean it. And if you're questioning tonight, is God there? Does God speak? Can God act with power? I want you to know, yes, God can. God never promised me that my world wouldn't collapse. God never made a promise that he wouldn't pull the rug from under my feet. God never promised me that I wouldn't run into the buffers. What God promised was that when I went through the fire, he would be with me. When I went through deep water, he would be by my side. And I have to say tonight, I hated going through it, but he was there. And that's the story that these people had for the children of succeeding generations. Not a fairy story, not a myth, not a bedtime story made up as you go along. These people could say, I tell you what, I was there. I walked through that riverbed. I felt the mud under my toes. I heard the water roaring in a heap up there. I stood on this bank by this cairn, and I watched the water rush back. I was one of the people who shouted for joy because I had arrived in the promised land. The river that reminds. When I first uh, set off for Switzerland, I felt very challenged about all sorts of things. It was a huge thing for us to go. It was a a challenge the size of which I hadn't experienced for years. I think probably for decades I'd been working within fairly safe parameters. And yes, we did do things at CPAS that were exciting. And I did go off and do stuff that perhaps other people wouldn't have enjoyed. But I can honestly tell you my boundaries were never pushed the way they were when I set off for, for Switzerland. And on the way through, on driving through France in the snow, in the snow, uh, with a trailer towed behind us and a roof box on and three years of stuff to live with in our Ford Focus, we stayed overnight. Um, Tom was worried that someone might run off with the trailer and I just hoped they would really by that time. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, Uh, We were sitting there chatting in this uh, hotel room (laughs) with a bottle of French wine, and um, we were talking about some of the things that had led up to this moment of being there, and uh, and of some of the things that we used to do that we had stopped doing. You know, we belonged to a little village church, and we didn't have a music worship group, we didn't have a big congregation like this and we were saying it's funny isn't it I've almost forgotten about this and I'd forgotten about doing that and one of the things that I pointed out was I've forgotten about writing and in my job at CPAS part of that was writing writing materials writing uh, news sheets writing books it was part of my job as indeed it was Anne's And I thought, hmm, I wonder what happened to that. 
And I felt, you know, this inner nudge of the Holy Spirit about the fact that I'd put away from me something that God had given to me as a gift, that I'd just sort of carelessly left it on one side. And so I made a resolve that night, and I went on the internet on my netbook, and I marked it up on a blog site. This is going to be the blog of Penny Frank. I'm on my way to Switzerland now, and I'm going to post a blog here. If you don't know what blogs are, I'm so sorry, but I haven't got time to tell you. But I'm going to post a blog here every Monday. And I posted it, and I thought, oh, I've done it now. But you know, in terms of remembering what God has done, it has been such a blessing to me. You see, when that grandparent was by that can and the child said, Granddad, what's this? Yes, the child heard the story. And for the child, if the story was told well, it would be as though they had been there at the time. But the child wasn't the only one with the blessing. Think of the granddad reliving that excitement, that sense of danger, that pumping heart, that, oh, is the water coming back before I get there, that... My word, God is powerful. God does keep his promise. Telling the story was like reliving the experience. And most of the Mondays that I've been back in Switzerland, which is a year now, most of the Mondays I've posted a blog. And sometimes I've felt like writing it, and sometimes it's been a real discipline. But I'm going to keep doing it. Not because I think the world is sitting, waiting with bated breath to hear from me, but because I need to tell the story of God. I need to remind myself about the things I'm learning in Switzerland. I need to hear my voice saying, God's amazing. I need it. So, where are you with all this? I'm sure I'm not the only one that needs reminding who God is, what God said, what God did. And maybe if someone presses you hard, you'll tell a story about when you became a Christian, or maybe you were healed, or maybe you uh, experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that you could tell to someone else. But when was that? Yesterday? This afternoon? You see, the trouble is with stories is that they grow old. And they get weary. And when you tell a weary story to people, they feel weary too. But when you tell a story that's fresh and alive, then people hear it as fresh and alive. What's God done for you today? How did God speak to you yesterday? What has God done in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendship group, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your job? What's God been busy doing this week? Nothing. But God works all the time. You, you have a story to tell. You don't have to blog it. It's only maniacs like me who get into that. Because I wouldn't stick to the discipline otherwise. But you have a story to tell every day of your life every minute of it. 
that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, that God loves you with an everlasting love, that God will go through the fire, go through the flood, never leave you, never, never leave you. You have a story to tell. And so I've come tonight, well, because I wanted a good excuse of telling the story. It's done me good. You may have gone to sleep, but it's done me good. And so I have to say to you, here are the things that really impacted me about this story again. It's the river that, that divides, and it could have cut them off from the promises of God, but they obeyed, and they stepped into those promises. Perhaps that's something that you need to do. It was the river that united. They had to take their place among the people of God to walk across. They couldn't say, no, well, I, I don't really believe exactly what they believe. You know, I'm, I, I, mm. well, if we talked about baptism, we wouldn't be saying the same things, you know. And they, they believe in the Holy Spirit. And um, <clears throat> they like hymns ancient and modern. You know, I don't want to go across with them. They had to go across. There was one opportunity. The river was rolled back. Here was their chance to walk, and the waters would come back. Where are you in that? And it was the river that reminded them, the cairn being built, the opportunity to tell the story for those who needed to hear and to tell the story for those who needed to tell it. Maybe that's for you as well. God bless.